0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond.
1: Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and on today's episode of Raise the Line, I'm really happy to have Dr. Brad Spellberg. He's the chief medical officer at LA County USC Hospital, and he recently wrote a book uh, called Broken, Bankrupt, and Dying. It's about the healthcare industry and uh, by the title, you can tell that there, he obviously has a very strong opinion on, on what we might need to fix with our healthcare system and with COVID-19 and all that's happening. I was really excited to have Brad on with me. So Brad, thanks for taking the time to join me uh, on the show. Thank you for having me. So Brad, let's just dive right in. I mean, you're in the middle of LA County. We know that COVID-19 is rising across the country and certainly in LA County, uh, the state of California has put in new restrictions on LA County. What are you seeing as you walk around the hospital?
0: Yeah, we did not get hit by a New York style surge where we just got suddenly overwhelmed out of the blue. But what we've seen is a steady week after week rise in cases that are It's sort of like boiling a frog where the temperature is incrementally going up bit by bit. And we are definitely feeling the strain at this point. Um, our staff are exhausted. The hospital is full of I mean, We've had more COVID positives, I'm told, than any other hospital in LA County. And it's not slowing down. It's actually still speeding up.
1: Are you seeing a differential in terms of who is coming with COVID-19 versus the initial wave? So is it still kind of primarily the elderly? Or are you seeing that, uh, you know, other age ranges? Are you seeing it affect different ethnic groups, socioeconomic classes, things like that?
0: Well, you know, we we tend to have a younger patient population in the county hospitals. We We definitely got a big surge of skilled nursing patients, skilled nursing homes early on. We still see those occasionally, but I would say we've had a mix of young and old all along and that mix hasn't really shifted. Definitely socio-demographic issues. Definitely people who are the working poor are being really devastated by this infection. Families that can't self-isolate because people live in a relatively small space. That, That really is underscoring the social demographic inequities in our society.
1: And this is a fairly concrete question. I'm just curious, how do they pay for the care? So they come in, they're maybe making ends meet with their current budget, then they get hit by COVID. How does that family figure out their healthcare bill?
0: Well, remember, we're a public hospital. So patients come to us either with Medicaid or Medi-Cal in California, or we help them secure Medi-Cal. And because of expanded Medi-Cal under the Affordable Care Act, most of our patients are able to get some form of coverage. This is not a private hospital. We are the safety net for the largest county in the country. We are here, even if patients don't have insurance, we take care of you. We work with those families. That, so for us at this hospital, you know, people are not gonna go bankrupt getting care here. But really the issues are, for the rest of the healthcare system, the issues you're raising are correct. We are the only country in the world that links healthcare access to employment. If your employer buys health insurance for you, great. You get laid off or furloughed, what are you supposed to do? That is a disastrously bad healthcare
1: system. Let's just jump right in then to Broken, Bankrupt, and Dying. What what inspired you to write the book and, and walk me through the book in terms of kind of key highlights you'd like people to extract from it?
0: What inspired me to write the book is the an unending ceaseless wave of humanity that crashes upon the safety net hospitals in this country where when the private system is not able to do the job doesn't have the funding to do the job where are patients supposed to go we see people who have to choose should this week should i buy groceries or should i buy my medicines should i pay my rent or should i buy my medicines Should I go to the urgent care visit even though I can't afford it and might have to forego something else important in my life? This is not a humane way to deliver healthcare. And in the richest country in the world, it is really an embarrassment. And the fact is that Americans are getting ripped off. We overspend by more than a trillion dollars per year to purchase healthcare compared to countries that are wealthy industrialized countries. But we live shorter lives than people in those countries, and everybody should be upset because we're all getting ripped off by this healthcare system.
1: You know, with the political climate as it is, you know, very, very recently we had debates about topics like Medicare for all, uh, universal basic income, things like that, and now we're living in an era where, in just a few months later, there are these stimulus packages which, which include, you know, universal testing for free, making sure that people are allowed to get some income if they're small business owners or individuals getting stipend checks to help keep them afloat. So things are happening. Do you feel like there is actually some more consensus around these ideas or what what is your take? Well, actually,
0: that is the theme of the book. Don't care what your politics are. I'm an independent, frankly. I don't care what your politics are. We're all getting ripped off. If you're a Republican, you're getting ripped off. If you're a Democrat, you're getting ripped off. Now you may have different ideas about the solution, but the point is, if you believe in Medicare for all, or you believe in private exchanges, those ideas can be melded. Let's not stick to philosophical purity. We need to come up with win-win solutions. And there are international models of healthcare that show us we can have a single payer system with private exchanges on top. It doesn't have to be one or the other. We can give both parties what's important to them, and we can do it in a way that saves a trillion dollars per year of healthcare costs, helping us to get back into fiscal responsibility.
1: What, what's an example of a country, Brad, that, that you've looked at and studied and you feel like, hey, we could really learn a lot from this country? So we go through, in the book,
0: a number of international models, many of which work very, very well. In the United States, there are some unique cultural themes that are really somewhat different than in other countries. The strength of the concepts of capitalism in the US, the don't tread on me philosophy in the US that is foundational to this country gives a little distrust of government and makes it more difficult to do a simple, you know, universal single payer system, makes it more difficult to get it implemented. But there are countries and the two that I talked about in the book are Australia and New Zealand that have successfully blended these models and put together in competition single payer and private multi payer. What could be more American than saying, oh, you like A and you like B,
1: let's let them compete and see who wins. And what, what do you think are, are the biggest reasons we haven't gotten to a model like Australia or New Zealand? And, and do you feel like those barriers are coming down?
0: I think the first reason is inertia. Change is hard. People have to accept that our healthcare system is broken, and people have not yet really fundamentally accepted that. If you say to me, you want to take our current system and make it bigger, then you think our current system is workable and just needs more investment in it. And what I'm telling you is we're, we're being ripped off. You don't lean into the ripoff. So the first thing you have to do is accept that our current system is broken. And the reason it's broken is it was never rationally designed. Our healthcare system in this country is an accident of history. It is an accidental byproduct of fighting World War II. That story is told in the book. So it was never rationally designed. You got to get past the inertia. The second reason, partisan politics. People are looking for, I win, you lose. We need to look for win-wins.
1: Walk me through briefly that story of what happened after World War II. I'm sure a lot of folks don't know that story, and I'm sure that you could tell it in a really compelling way.
0: Yeah. So when World War II began, The people who ran the country remembered vividly what happened in the aftermath of World War I. There was a massive inflationary spike, which led to national strikes, violence, economic turmoil, layoffs, and they were determined to prevent a post-World War II inflationary spike. So they passed a series of legislation, one of which was called the Stabilization Act. The Stabilization Act prevented companies from giving pay raises to people as a means to compete in the job market. So your labor pool is going overseas in the military, but companies had to ratchet up industrial production. So they they needed to lure workers. They wanted to raise pay, but they couldn't because of the Stabilization Act. But the Stabilization Act did not touch employee benefits. So suddenly companies said, oh, well, that I'm going to make my benefits package really rich to lure competitors. And the insurance industry, which previously had not cared about health insurance at all, suddenly said, oh, I can sell huge health insurance packages to these employers. Now that momentum was fed by a second act called the Revenue Act. The Revenue Act is how the federal government raised the funds to pay to fight the war. It raised taxes on everything and created one new tax loophole. And you know what that was? Employee benefits became tax deductible. So here, these companies are like, oh, I can lure employees by ratcheting up my benefits packages, and then I can write up those costs from my taxes. And the employees themselves loved it because they got a personal tax deduction. And this is why to this day, we are the only country in the world where both the employer and the employee jointly pay together to purchase a health insurance policy. It's ludicrous.
1: I'm curious, bringing it back to COVID now. So COVID has exposed a lot of the weaknesses in our healthcare system. Walk me through exactly which weaknesses are, are now more evident than ever.
0: Well, obviously, the first weakness is the inequity of our healthcare system, where people who already can self-isolate and live in spacious accommodations and don't have to choose between rent, food, and health care. They're getting good health care, no problem. It's the families that are struggling to put food on the table, the working poor. They're working their butts off every day to put food on the table and pay their rent. And now they have to figure out, geez, can I even get health care? Do I even have access to healthcare? And if I get it, can I afford it? The second layer then we touched upon already. If you link healthcare access to employment at a time when 40 million Americans have filed for unemployment, that's a huge red flag. We should not link healthcare access. It's not just to employment, it's to an employer that's relatively large that purchases a group policy. If you're self-employed, if you work for a small business, you know, if you're an independent contractor, you're not getting health insurance for your employer anyway. So these are some of the inequities that I think COVID-19 has highlighted.
1: Yeah, especially with the gig economy where, you know, employment is now defined by having five employers, none of which actually own you uh, in the sense of that they take care of you. Uh, they all sort of push off that cost of healthcare onto someone else. I, I'm curious, Brad, you know, with these problems in mind, We often think of essential workers, right? And it feels really uh, sad to say that our essential workers, the ones that we think are essential for the running of our economy, are the ones that are getting the poorest pay and poorest benefits. Uh, It feels upside down to me. What what would you recommend to someone that's at home, who's an essential worker, working two, three jobs, where their employer is not doing uh, what they should, not really covering their benefits because of our upside down system?
0: I wish that I had a short-term fix, the best I can say is in four months, we're gonna to go to the polls and we're gonna make probably the most important voting decision we've made in a generation. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we okay with the system we have? Vote in November.
1: So with that all in mind, what would you say are some short-term and long-term projections you have around COVID-19? I mean understanding the healthcare framework, understanding what's going on with COVID-19 right now, what do you see uh, in the coming weeks and months?
0: I've been pretty open from the beginning that I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anybody else does either. This this virus is still, it's hard to believe it's only been four months. It feels like four years, but it's only four months that we've even known what this virus is. We still no, don't know so much about it. Um, Some countries have controlled it well. Even in the United States, it's not one pandemic, it's 50 different pandemics. And even within a state, it could be dozens of different pandemics within a state. So all I can do is sort of tell you that what we're seeing now is definitely increasing. Now, the flip side is, the severity of the cases on average is decreased. We're seeing fewer people come in with catastrophic pneumonias. And if we didn't have that, If the severity hadn't decreased, we would have crashed and burned six weeks ago. So it's hard for me to say what next month looks like or the month after that. I can tell you the next two weeks, we are really worried and we should be worried because our healthcare system is getting overwhelmed. Now you might argue, I think it's very reasonable to say, look, you could die of COVID or you could die of bankruptcy because you can't make a living because the economy shut down and that's true and I don't envy our leaders who have to balance these competing forces. But if the healthcare system gets overwhelmed, everyone is at risk. So when that starts happening is when you really do have to start thinking about, I really think we need to turn stuff back off. We have to control the temperature. If we go off scale like happened in New York, deaths start piling up.
1: With that really kind of sad and morbid view in terms of what could happen, I'd love to get your advice to folks that are entering the healthcare space, new healthcare professionals. A lot of our listeners are students that are just starting their careers. What would you say to them as they're entering this very uh, unusual time?
0: Yeah, so I'm not going to lie, it's exhausting. Um, I'm exhausted. Everybody I work with is exhausted. The flip side is, you know, it's very gratifying work. I come to the hospital every day with heroes who go towards the danger, not away from it. If we remember our training, if we wash our hands, if we wear our personal protective equipment properly, if we physically distance, we can stay safe. And there are multiple studies now that have come out that have showed that the attack rate of the virus in healthcare workers overall is lower than in the population around them because we have the training and the access to the PPE. So if we remember our training and we use our equipment properly and physically distance, we can do our job safely.
1: That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And it certainly is a worry for a lot of folks. You know, am I going to get sick? So thanks for mentioning that, that point as well. Brad, is there any kind of final thoughts you'd like to leave our, our folks with? Yeah, I would just say, you know,
0: we have to tear ourselves out of the inertia of normalcy. We have the advantage of having COVID-19 and recent obvious cases of systemic racism that can help propel us out of our normal state sense of inertia, but that means we need to follow through with change, right? We need to honor these stressful times with getting change through. It's time to stop yelling at each other, and it's time to start listening to each other, meeting in the middle, and getting change Yeah.
1: Well those are incredible words. I appreciate that that wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brad Spelberg. That was fantastic.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together.